ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. They're not really engaged with this debate. They don't know what the what the voice is. Some people don't know what the referendum is either. So they've got a task on their hands to just get them up to speed. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independents. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello there and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation in Sydney. And PK, on Wednesday, the Prime Minister finally set the date for the referendum on the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. 14th of October, everybody mark it on your calendar because we all have to vote. Not that I think it's going to be easy to forget the day, PK, because this announcement was really effectively the starter's gun on what I think is going to be a pretty intense, noisy and probably acrimonious six weeks of campaigning. Soon we're going to be joined here on the party room by the ABC's Dana Morse to take a look at how the campaigns for yes and no are likely to play out. But PK, the next six weeks... It's going to be a real balancing act for the Prime Minister and his Cabinet, isn't it, as they try to manage all of the other bits of government while not losing control of the message on The Voice. Opposition leader Peter Dutton is already furiously labelling Anthony Albanese as voice-obsessed. And we've got a Prime Minister who is concentrating on everything else but the needs of the Australian people. Absolutely, Fran, uh, although I think there is a certain mm, irony on that one. I mean... Peter Dutton's a bit voice obsessed too, <laughs> obsessed in defeating it. Let's see how but many still, questions in question time they yeah. ask about the voice over the next I, I two weeks. I think the very least we can accept that they're both voice obsessed, okay? Now, the coalition will seek to weaponise any misstep from the government here. And this week alone, there are really a string of issues demanding the government's time and attention. Uh, let's just go through them. We'll start with Qantas, shall we? Both Qantas boss Alan Joyce and the government are in the hot seat over the government's decision to deny requests from Qatar. Uh, for an extra 21 flights into Australia's major airports on top of the 28 flights a week it offers now in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. Now, the government has defended the decision uh, and said they can put on more flights, for instance, bigger bigger aeroplanes and go to Adelaide. Uh, that's or Darwin. Not, yeah, or Darwin, which is not, of course, the kind of proposition that they're that they've called for or want. Uh, the demand is in places like Sydney and Melbourne. But the government has defended the decision. Assistant Treasurer Stephen Jones said to the OFAR, we can drive prices down, but if we drive them down to a level where it's actually unsustainable to run an airline instead of having two carriers, we will design our markets in a way which will make it unsustainable for the existing Australian-based carrier. So that's what he said. And really, really made a lot of people unhappy, didn't he? Sure did. I mean, there was people from all sorts of quarters of Australian society accusing the government of running a protection racket for Qantas. The tourism industry didn't like it, the agriculture sector, some of the states, as you say, CEOs of some of our biggest companies. Not one, but two former competition czars, Rod Sims and Alan Fells, both long-time bosses of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Their verdict on this decision by the government to deny Qatar was that it would hurt competition. And then, of 
course, Virgin PK CEO Jane Hurdlicker told you on RN Breakfast that if Qatar could run these services, flights could be 40% cheaper in Australia. Now, a lot of people have been quoting that claim as flight costs are so high right now, though, of course, we should say that Virgin is not only Qantas' direct competitor, it's also in strategic partnership with Qatar. So it does have skin in this game. Yeah, that's right, Fran. Uh, Outgoing Qantas boss Alan Joyce faced, well, he copped it from all sides, actually. He faced an absolute grilling in in the Senate committee at the beginning of this week. We're recording on a Thursday, but God, it was quite something to behold. Uh, it seemed like there was a competition for who could be kind of <laughs> the, the meanest to him, if I can Well, be- let's face it, there were plenty of fronts to attack on. There was, you know, airline prices, there was unrefunded flight credits, there's cancelled flights. The list was long for uh, Alan Joyce that day. Yeah, that's right. Look, Fran, while we describe Qantas as the national carrier, as I said before, it's it's not government owned. And I think that is an important element here. And so the government hasn't been able, in my view, to give a convincing or consistent answer on the decision it's come to. And now it's it's getting kind of trickier for them, right? Because, you know, Qantas on, on so many levels is under, I think, sustained scrutiny. And I think taxpayers and voters feel pretty concerned about it. You know, from the complaints, isn't it the most complained about airline? I mean, it's, it's quite a thing. And it looks like the government's too cosy with Qantas. That's at least the optics, wouldn't you say? Definitely. I would say that's certainly the optics. And the timing for the government around all this too was really terrible, PK, because this blew up just days after the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, announced a review into competition policy saying we need a more competitive economy to lift productivity and wages. And in the same week too that Qantas posted a record profit of $2.47 billion, nearly $2.5 billion profit. Both those things really undercut the government's rationale for denying Qatar better access to the to the Australian market. That's right. So speaking of of the way that productivity and the economic debate has has been playing out in the last week. Last week we talked about that intergenerational report handed down by the Treasurer and its warnings of a hotter, poorer and older Australia in 40 years. Inevitably, of course, that led to a discussion about our tax system. One of the lines that has really resonated, it seems, is this idea of of what this tax time bomb might mean for future generations and who's paying for stuff, if I can be blunt. I spoke with former Treasury Secretary Ken Henry about this on RM Breakfast last Friday. Here he is. But worse than that, it sets up an intergenerational tragedy, right? Because it's the young people who are going to be the workers of the future, people who are weighed down with hex debt, who are going to have to repay a mountain of public debt, who are dealing with the consequences of climate change, as we've discussed, who are facing um, diminishing prospects of ever being able to afford a home of their own, these poor buggers are also going to be the ones who are facing ever-increasing average rates of, of income tax. Ken Henry was using that rallying cry to call for broader tax reform off the back of the report. And, of course, you know, he's the author of... The uh, Henry, Henry Report, tax you might review. pick that up from his surname. Uh, <laughs> and lots of his ideas were not taken up at the time. And I think he's been on this for a while, but I think this latest intergenerational report made it a lot easier for him. Yeah, you're right. Um, he knows a thing or two about a potential tax reform where you might go for it. But that warning, PK from Ken Henry, of intergenerational tragedy looming, 
that really struck a chord, it seems. I kept hearing it repeated all week, you know, as people weighed into this tax debate. Uh, people like Balance of Power Senator David Pocock. In fact, there's a group of crossbenchers now speaking out, including or perhaps led by Teal MP Allegra Spender, Kate Cheney and others. They're calling for what they call uh, describe as a broader conversation about tax reform. They're really demanding the government use this report as a starting point for more ambitious tax reform. They want everything on the table including lifting the GST. Now, the government doesn't want to go anywhere near that, but the pressure is ramping up ahead of the next sitting fortnight. Uh, And there's competing pressures too, PK, because some of these same MPs who are calling for a a broad conversation on tax reform, they're also calling for the government to ditch the Stage 3 tax cuts, which, of course, are about decreasing uh, the income tax burden on Australians into the future. So, you know, competing pressures here to not deliver those income tax cuts across the board because they're seen by many as inequitable, but at the same time to lift other taxes. Tax reform, it is never easy. No, it's not. And we're recording this on a Thursday morning. Worth also mentioning that it's the day that Tony Burke, the Industrial Relations Minister, will unveil the next tranche of industrial relations reforms. And this is, of course, about dealing with entitlements for gig economy workers. You know, we're talking your Uber Eats or your Uber driver. Um, and he, he's kind of put it in the framework of safety for those workers too. It's something business is pretty upset about. But they did say they were going to do something around this, casualised work and the way that the right system works for these workers. And he used a line, I thought, thought which will probably really resonate in the debate on RM Breakfast that I thought is worth sharing, where he talked about, you know, overseas, for instance, workers rely on tips. That's not a culture that we have in Australia, Mm. and yet we do when it comes to this gig economy, essentially, and that this is what this is about. And I think when we hear something like that, there will be a huge contest, and I'm not putting any verdict on whether the laws are up to scratch. I haven't seen them. But that line, I think, will resonate with Australians who... No, there's a trade-off in terms of all of this, but also really fiercely guard a, a workplace relations system where their rights are a lot better than perhaps they are in the United States, for instance. So interesting. This would be world first, language. this legislation, if they can impose successfully without sort of killing off things like the, you know, the, the rideshare companies, for instance, but they impose minimum standards on them, which is what this is all about. Employee-like standards, things like, you know, minimum overtime rates, insurance coverage, long-time insurance coverage, a place of complaint for workers who feel like they've been dumped off the accreditation apps, unfairly, things like that. And as I say, the the world will be watching this, I think. Oh, yeah, the world will be watching. And, you know, strap on in, get your seatbelts on, because it will be a very fierce debate in Australia too. Business isn't happy, but the devil can be in the details, so we'll have a look. Seems like a good time to bring in our guest, PK. Let's do it. Dana Morse, ABC political reporter, joining us from Ghana country in Adelaide, and she was at the announcement of the date. Welcome to the party room. Thanks for having me. Dana, it's so great to have you, and you are going to be one very busy reporter in the next six weeks because, Dana, at last we now have the date. The idea for a voice came from the people, and it will be decided by the people. Today I announce that Referendum Day will be the 14th of October. 
And they went crazy when they heard that. What was the mood like in that room, Dana, given the polls are, you'd have to say, looking challenging, to say the least, for the S campaign? Well, you wouldn't know it if you were in the room. Really, there was so much energy, uh, so much goodwill among the people there. And it was such a diverse crowd. You had uh, Indigenous people, obviously, and those grassroots campaigners, those people who have spent their lives on the front line, including uh, um, Auntie Pat Anderson, Pat Turner, you know, all these people who have really shaped the state of Indigenous affairs uh, going forward. But then you also had all of these community groups, Hazaras for Yes, you had uh, Turbans for Yes as well. Uh, And it was also out in this northern suburbs of Adelaide, uh, out in the suburb of Elizabeth, this low socioeconomic area, really. And it was, you know, you were getting people in off the street attending this. It was just such a diverse crowd and all there for one thing. And it's it's a palpable sense of relief, I would say, to have that date, to have that finish line in mind, because it has been this sort of ambiguous umbrella over the campaign of when will this come to a head and when will we finally have an answer to this question? And the Yes camp has really zoned in on the suburban vote across Australia, which makes sense because that's the place where there are, you know, people who can be really convinced, you know, they're not hard yes or hard no people. Now, Noel Pearson, who is a leading Yes campaigner, has stated the Yes campaign want to speak to ordinary Australians. The No camp, led by Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians, Jacinda Nubajimba-Price, criticises the idea as elitist and divisive. Uh, that's the idea of the, the referendum, not the strategy. How, how does the Yes campaign get out from under that elitist tag? I mean, it was interesting that Noel Pearson did concede on Thursday morning that the the no campaign had got out in front. Yeah, I think what they do going forward, it's it's going to be reflected in that campaign strategy. They're going to take those 30,000 volunteers and there's going to be a lot of one-to-one conversations, one-to-one campaigning. It's very hard, I think, to change that message of elitism that they've so successfully been branded with. But really, I mean, if you look at the people behind this, is not accurate at all. Um, These are people who have come from the grassroots. And if you look into their history, it gives a real indication of of why they've taken on these roles in this campaign and why they're pushing for change. A lot of them have family legacy as activists. So I think it's difficult to do through the media because if people are being perceived on TV, often they are being thought of as being some kind of elite or, you know, of, of the higher echelon. So it'll be that grassroots campaigning where they'll seek to change that. And it's been put to me that, you know, if all 30,000 of these volunteers have 10 conversations where they manage to, to swing people to a yes vote, that's the referendum one. So It'll be a, a long campaign, but it'll be the people on the front line and the volunteers, and it won't necessarily play out through us like we would usually see in a federal election. We'll see whether that is actually the way it goes. But I, I was struck by the Prime Minister. I thought he was very on message in the address to launch the campaign. He used, you know, very positive words like generous and hope and, you know, a very positive vibe. But he also hammered a few points, and, and this is where I think, you know, the, the Yes campaign is on the strongest ground which is the PM said voting no leads nowhere. It means making no change. That was one message. And the other message that crept in this time was about money. It was about a funding message signalling to people because we all know that a lot of money goes into Indigenous affairs and has done over the years 
and yet the indicators aren't changing much. The levels of disadvantage aren't changing enough. And he said, you know, it's all about making sure the funding actually reaches the people on the ground, no more waste and better results where they are needed. Is that a new tack, do you think, from the Prime Minister and what we're going to hear more of? I think so. I think it's an attempt to flip the script, right, because that's something that we hear from the No campaign is that billions of dollars goes into Indigenous affairs, why then do they need a voice? So the Prime Minister is then taking what has been used as a weapon and trying to flip it and say, well, yeah, public money is spent on Indigenous affairs and what we want the voice for is to make sure that it's spent well. So I think he's trying to get out in front of what will be uh, a significant campaign point for the No campaign because this is all taking place in a cost of living crisis environment and we know that's the preoccupying sort of message on the minds of everyday Australians because at the end of the day, Indigenous affairs policy doesn't affect most of the country, doesn't affect 90-odd percent of the country. So they're not really engaged with this debate. They don't know what the what the voice is. Some people don't know what the referendum is either. So they've got a task on their hands to just get them up to speed with that. So that's why the Prime Minister would be looking to get out in front of this money argument because everyday Australians hearing, oh, billions of dollars going on Indigenous affairs, and yet what are they doing to, to address this cost of living crisis for me? So I think that's trying to shape the message there a little bit. Yeah, and and that's why I think we've heard this line from Noel Pearson that they'll save money with this proposal because you won't get the waste that you get from you know, bureaucrats spending lots of money. The other one is the responsibility line that Noel Pearson talks about, you know, we'll end up responsible for our own affairs so you can blame us, which is a... Is a <laughs> it's risky, right, for him to come out and say uh, this is about taking responsibility. Again, I think that is, a, that is a call to people who might be in the soft no uh, to say this is about an accountability measure for Indigenous people themselves. I think it's high risk, high reward if Noel Pearson starts to get cut through with that line, I think that would really resonate with some people who would be looking at the state of affairs in Australia and saying, why are things the way that they are? Uh, So if it pays off for him, it could be, you know, a genius campaign tactic. Yeah, it's a rights and responsibilities thing. Look, there was a really stark difference too that we're hearing from the rhetoric on the launch day from both camps. This Prime Minister from day one had attacked people who had a different opinion to him, called them names, and that opened up the floor for the whole division to start. With all the horrible racial abuse, with all the horrible uh, uh, bigotry that's been going on out there, and it's all elbow. The No campaign might be inciting rage. We're going to incite love and faith and the removal of fear two very starkly different tones there. No campaigner Warren Mundine, followed by Yes campaigner Noel Pearson. Dana, if that's any indication of the tone going forward, this is going to be a pretty rough campaign politically, which not too good for the country, but especially not good for Indigenous Australians who are already copying it, aren't they? Absolutely. There have been so many conversations already about the taxing effect of this campaign on Indigenous people and their mental health. And I think we are seeing that play out in the form of Warren Mundine. And he's been not open. He was pressed to say in an interview earlier this year that he was struggling with his mental health and he had to take a little bit of time out from campaigning. And that was because of the abuse that was being directed at him. So And and this isn't just a a problem for Warren Mundine. This is a problem for 
all Indigenous Australians who feel that their identity is now up for debate as a result of talking about the voice and talking about the rights and the role and the responsibility of First Nations people in Australian society. But in another way, other than looking at that from the, the sort of mental health angle, it also um, it, it very much mirrors their campaign messaging. The No campaign has been on the attack from the very beginning. They've been very inflammatory in their language, whereas the Yes campaign has really not come up to meet them on that. They don't often actually hit back at claims from the No campaign. You know, I've heard Linda Burney before, for example, say, you know, people are entitled to their own opinions, but this is what we believe should happen. So it's two very different ways of transmitting messages to the public. Now, the thing is, right, and this is past campaigning, but, you know, it's optimism is wonderful, just generally as a vibe. But, you know, fear is really potent in election campaigns. And that's that's the thing here, isn't it, Dana? It's a It's a really strong recipe often for success. Absolutely. And these are, these are not new arguments, right? We've seen these arguments come out before around concerns and fears around the Mabo decision, around the WIC decision. Uh, and ultimately, they weren't borne out, but they did cause significant alarm and concern at the time. And those messages have hung around. Those messages have had longevity into this campaign, even when those decisions have had um, very little impact on the lives of Australians. You're talking about uh, things more, like more generally. You know, losing your backyard, that kind of Absolutely. Scare yeah, that was that was a, a extremely potent scare campaign during the Marbo case. And of course that was never on the table. And that that argument, that losing your backyard argument, is something that is being peddled by um, conspiracy theorists around the voice as well. So it is putting that message of fear into Australians that there's something to lose here for you. That's what they're saying. That's what's really behind all fear campaigns is that somebody is trying to take something from you. And the the challenge here for the yes case is going to be countering that and saying, actually, no, this is about elevating Indigenous Australians to the same playing field as the rest of the broader population. And really, They've got, I think, a little bit of a task ahead of them because the misinformation around this campaign is so much more exciting than the prospect of an advisory body. To be honest, that's pretty boring. So it's going to be whether or not they can get that cut through with the public going up against that misinformation. And that's something they're definitely alive to. I spoke to Professor Megan Davis about this yesterday and she said they are getting absolutely hammered by misinformation on all sides. Now, just on another front, if we can just go to something that was interesting this week, I thought. We saw the Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, provide some details about a health incident she had a few years ago, um, a TIA or a kind of mini-stroke, the treatment of which has affected her voice. Now, although cognitively it has no ongoing impact, she's pretty sharp, um, this revelation follows a whispering campaign that's been going on about Linda Burney. Will the disclosure settle that? And was it you know smart to finally address this? I think that, you know, the commentary around Linda Burney has been 
fairly unfair and speaks to what it is like for Indigenous people and Indigenous women in public life. It's the same level of scrutiny and the same, you know, awful misinformation that was spread before she came out with this disclosure of of why her voice had changed is something that isn't applied to uh, a lot of the other members of Parliament. I don't know. I think that this will probably settle that a little bit. But the fact that she's had to make this disclosure about her personal health and what is a, a private matter, it's a real shame, really, that people couldn't just allow her to be and that she's had to go and reveal something very private, very personal about herself and her health. And hopefully people respect that privacy going forward. Are there yeah. early signs that they are, do you think, Dana? Not if the media reporting so far is anything to go by. It was a big splash in the papers. Uh, it was, you know, covered fairly intensely. And, you know, it's it's worth noting that the day after that is the announcement of the date of the referendum and Linda Burney did not stand up on it on the day. So is she retreating a little bit from this because of the intensity and the scrutiny? Maybe. Hey, Dana. You know, I love you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Dana, thank you. And can I just tell everybody uh, who love Dana's analysis there, you can get more of it. Dana's got an excellent explainer about all things voice and referendum on the ABC News page under the voice referendum tab. So too much voice is never enough. You can not only listen to the new podcast I'm doing with Carly Williams, but you can have a look at Dana's explainer too. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Yes, and the bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time here in the party room. And this week's question comes from Sean. Sean asks, should the government just have legislated the voice or even put it to a plebiscite like marriage equality and then legislate it as opposed to putting it to a referendum? A yes referendum result seems a very high bar in this day and age. I can't imagine marriage equality being repealed by any future government, says Sean. I feel it would be the same with the voice. PK. Well, what they should have done is not for me to determine, but I can give you my own analysis of whether it could be repealed. We only need Sean to look at history. And we had an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. It was called ATSIC and it was got rid of because it was legislation. So you say you feel it would be the same with the voice that wouldn't be repealed. I don't feel the same way because I was there the day ATSIC was abolished. I was in the parliament and, and I think that there is no way we can guarantee that a voice wouldn't be abolished by a future government. I really don't. I think that's a fact. I think absolutely that a voice could be removed by a government that didn't like the voice or perhaps what it was telling it. So I think on the history, we can, history is often a guide to the future, isn't it? So I do think that is an important point. You say you can't imagine marriage equality being repealed. Well, actually, I can. <laughs> uh, look, I, I agree with you that it's the times have changed and it's quite embedded in our culture that, you know, we do accept that gay and lesbian people, queer people generally are, are more part of the community. But um, I think what you, you will find is that, you know, these, these things are hard fought. Mm. They're really hard fought. And um, I understand why Indigenous people want it embedded in the Constitution. I also understand why others don't like it. I, I, you know, there are lots of arguments, yes, and for and against. But the fact is that when you do it by legislation, you can remove it more easily. That is a fact. 
And to say the governments wouldn't be tempted, well, they have been before. Yeah, and it's not just ATSIC. You know, since ATSIC, we've also seen the National Indigenous Council. That's been that's gone. The Prime Minister's yeah, Indigenous Advisory Council. That's gone. You know, way back in time, there was the National uh, Aboriginal Consultative Council. That's gone. So these things, you know, what you say, PK, is absolutely right. There's it, It's proven, and that's one reason why Indigenous Australians voted for something to be included in the Constitution because they say they don't want it to be at the whim of governments. That's right. But again, this is deciding time. And it's funny, a lot of people say, oh, you know, you talk to people who have decided, you know what, I have been, Fran, overwhelmed by the number of texts I've got on RM Breakfast from people who have not decided actually how they're voting and don't know and get swayed all the time. And so mm. lots of people have not made their mind up, is yeah. my view, I mean, actually, that's why, at the moment. You know, I hate to give it another plug, but that's why I'm doing this um, podcast explainer with Carly Williams. It's called The the Voice you don't hate Referendum it. Explained. <laughs> I, I mean, not plug. to labour the point, though, because millions of Australians have never voted in a referendum. So many people don't even know what the Constitution is or does or, you know, what's in it, what's not in it. And then you've got to, you know, understand the import of that before you can make the decision of, of, you know, whether to include, uh, recognise our first Australians in the constitution and how to do that. So, you know, there's big things. People are still still really learning. They are, absolutely. Keep sending your questions in because we love getting them. We're especially fond of the voice notes, as we say. You can email them to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And keep on following The Party Room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. That's it for The Party Room this week. We'll be back in your feeds next week. See you, PK. See you, Fran.